0: There was once a man, a prophet. Uh, God said to him, I, I want you to take a wife. And she's going to be a very, very difficult wife. Um, a few smiles in the audience. <laughs> um, she is a promiscuous woman. And God had a reason, as God tends to do, for this uh, prophetic action. And prophetic action was supposed to show the people of Israel, in the time of Hosea the prophet, that they were exactly like this prophet's wife was going to be to him. And she ended up uh, sleeping around with other people, uh, embarrassing her husband very publicly, and again and again in a book he takes her back. And again and again it's supposed to be an illustration to the people of Israel of what it feels like to be God, faced with our multiple adulteries and idolatries, as we give our attention and focus to other things, in Jesus' words, the desire for other things, as opposed to the kingdom of God and Jesus. To God, from a divine view, it feels like we uh, if we keep going away from Him are performing multiple adulteries against Him. That's that's how it feels. Now, that makes the most sense when we've done that Song of Songs series. Do you remember the three weeks we had in Song of Songs? And, and how that's a glorious picture of a, a lover uh, and, the groom, and the groom and the bride and, and this amazing picture of a human love song, very graphic, but also supposed to be a sign of how Christ will love the church or how God loves Israel. And what it says is that God's putting a huge amount on the line when it comes to us. Now this week, as as you'll know, in in our midst we've had um, happy events and and deeply sad events. The sad event was a very personal funeral um, and the the happy event yesterday was the the marriage of Ian and Magda um, over at St Albans with the reception here. Both of those events are heavy with love in different ways. The separation at a funeral and the pain that you feel proves that there really was love. It's very hard to explain love away scientifically, isn't it? If you try and explain a kiss away, it's a sort of two humanoids bringing their lips together and exchanging a few chemicals and probably germs. <laughs> it doesn't seem an adequate description of a kiss. And love is equally complicated to explain away, but you know it when you find it. And you know it when it's gone. And what the scripture is telling us about God is he really knows it. And he genuinely feels it when we pull away from him. And it is gone. His best way of describing it to us is is telling us that we have become, in the words of Hosea, like a prostitute who actually pays people to sleep with her. That's the journey uh, that we, from time to time, go on. And last week, we were, we were talking about the mess we were in. Did you remember that? And we were talking about the, the whole of the sort of Old Testament answer to us coming out of Eden. In Eden, there was the man and the woman, and they were naked, and they knew no shame. There was a holy innocence... They'd been given one main commandment, which was to have lots of sex and have lots of babies and fill the earth. So presumably that's what they were getting on and doing. They were told they were not allowed to eat from the tree, and, uh, and they did, and they were then expelled from the garden, having realized they had shame. And we've been saying that we can't get back into Eden because even now as God's church, we still understand shame. And I think you might remember that line in my talk where I said, right, everyone take your clothes off (laughs) as an illustration of that. that We we don't want to do that. Fortunately, even the young adults congregation in the evening didn't want to do that, so (laughs) we were on safe ground there. And we can't get back into Eden. And we talked about that we're heading to eternity, and in eternity there won't be marriage per se and there won't be sex per se. We will all have worked out how to hang out together, knowing each other and being known in return, We'll have wonderful relationships, I'm sure, and personal ones and deep ones, but it will be a very different place there. And so the question is, how do we live in the muddle mess that we are in now? Uh, When again and again to God, what we do to him is hurt him because he's allowed himself to love us. If he didn't love us, he couldn't be hurt. It's the self-giving of him that enables us to hurt a divine entity. We wouldn't ordinarily be able to do that, but when I choose to love you as a congregation, and you choose to love me as a, as a preacher-pastor, we both give ourselves the potential to hurt each other, don't we? And in fact, 70% of church members—not in a survey I've done here, but a national survey—will say they've been hurt by their church leaders partly because we put expectations on each other. Actually, if you're in a married relationship, probably the people who will have hurt you most, even if they've been wonderful, will have been your spouse. <laughs> because your expectations on them will be huge. Same for parents, children, best friends, cousins, all the people that you hold dear, the people that you let closest in, also have the potential to hurt you. In a story that we had read to us, a very famous story, isn't it? There's David up on the roof of the palace, and the first thing you'll remember about the story is it was in the time when kings go out to war, (laughs) David was on the roof of his palace. So he's already opted out of his responsibilities, a little like Adam in the Garden of Eden, you know. She, she did it. (laughs) He sort of lets her play around with the fruit, sort of tease it off and bite it and then give it to him. He's probably standing right next to her (laughs) through the story. And here again, we have King David, One of the great heroes of uh, the Old Testament, just not going to war when he's supposed to be at war. Remember, he's a mighty warrior. It's not that he's afraid of war, he's good at war. But he gets up onto the roof of his house. And who knows, but maybe he knows that there's going to be a beautiful lady bathing down the bottom. Uh, Maybe the beautiful lady has heard that David is still in the palace. Maybe she quite deliberately goes to bathe in a place where she knows that she can see the palace roof from. Who knows? We don't know those details. But one way or another, he sees her. He gets excited by what he sees. Uh, She comes to the palace, and there's a power dynamic there, of course, because he's the king and she's someone else. Um, They sleep together, and they conceive. She has... One hint in the text that is an interesting giveaway is she has deliberately perhaps purified herself, which might suggest that she's, um, she's thinking about sex because her husband's off to war. <laughs> so, but we don't know these details. But they end up having a child who doesn't live. Um, David ends up killing her husband in, in an act of war. Um, and then they have a child who becomes King Solomon, who is another of the great characters of the scripture. But this um, incredible story really begins with the eyes. David sees her and wants to consume her. And this is almost the opposite of love, isn't it? Love is when we give ourselves to each other and volunteer ourselves to another and make ourselves vulnerable to another and consuming is when we see something, we go, I'm going to have that for myself. I'm going to grab at it. I was um, preparing uh, the talk a bit more last night, reading a commentary on 1 Corinthians. And, um, and uh, having read through some harrowing and difficult chapters of 1 Corinthians, I thought, I'll go and unwind and watch some telly. Um, I put on a film. Nicola came in, said, not that film. I put on another film, said, not that film. put on another film, said, not that film. So we ended up on the comedy channel. Uh, pooling comedy. Anyway, we got to the end of uh, last night at the Apollo or whatever we were watching. And and we were just, you know when you're in that state where you can't quite be bothered to move from the sofa? Well, we were there and it carried on. And this program on the Comedy Channel was then a a sort of an elaboration of uh, of, uh, something called Tinder, which I'm sure none of you know anything about. Tinder is a social media app which enables you to look at a picture of someone else and swipe right or swipe left depending on whether you think they're attractive or not. Now, of course, the photos that you've received have all been filtered through Instagram, (laughs) touched up in Photoshop and all this sort of thing, so they're not necessarily a particularly true reflection of that person anyway, it's their best foot forward. All you have to do is swipe right, swipe left, and you can end up on a date with them if they swipe right at the right time to you. Extraordinary. Well, the premise of this entire program was to get a couple who had been together for just long enough that you might disturb their relationship severely by putting them on this game show, uh, and then uh, get an audience in there and get some unsuspecting members of the public um, to, be, to volunteer to be in a lineup. And the audience then rated the members of the public on their attractiveness, and the couple had to guess and bet as to where they would fit into the lineup. So you've got four chaps here, a couple over here, and the chap has to go over and say, I would be one, two, three, or four in the lineup. Extraordinary. Anyway, the arrogant Rag put himself too high up the list. <laughs> that was slightly amusing. Um, but, but it's just a shocking place, isn't it, that we've got to in society where instead of looking for actual beauty, we're just on the surface level to the point that we make that the entire basis of relationship. And it does get worse uh, the deeper we go into this. Way back in the 80s, a study uh, of some male undergraduates uh, found that they rated their partner's attractiveness lower after viewing only 26 slides and one six-minute video of attractive nude females exhibiting sexual behavior. In 2000, a study of adolescents showed that a steady use of pornography frequently led to cheating on a girlfriend, and a greater tolerance of more novel and bizarre sexual material. In our teenage culture, 60% of teens, this is 10 years ago, said that they've been asked for explicit photos or videos of themselves. 38% had created a sext, which is a sort of social media, um, sort of sexual image of them. Um, Only 32% of those said they'd sent it to someone they only knew online not in real life. So that's like 12% of teens sending a sexual image of themselves to someone they've never met before. It's a a horrifying world that we've come to inhabit. Three quarters of adults think the society puts too much pressure on women today to have a sexualized appearance. Um, One third agree with the statement that your value as a person depends on how you look. Opinions did not vary significantly between men and women. Four million people in the UK have an eating disorder. Uh, the highest rate of new cases is boys aged between 10 and 14. 7% of sports scientists students are addicted to exercise. And you can go on and on with statistics, cosmetic industry, <laughs> ballooning, literally, in different places. This is not a very healthy culture that we're living in. I I don't think, I mean, you you may disagree, you may think that's the hallmark of um, of freedom and liberation. And the reading we had in Job was, was really interesting. Job is one of the few heroes of the Old Testament. He faces extraordinary loss in his life, doesn't he? Remember the loss of all seven of his children, the loss of his stocks and shares, the loss of his business, the loss of his property, the loss of everything, Uh, loss of his health, even the loss of his wife's support, real loneliness. And yet at the end, before he's got his answers, while he's still in despair, he can say, look, look look at me, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I won't look lustfully on someone I, I've made a covenant, that's, a, that's an agreed promise with my eyes that I'll, I'll turn away from a sexualization process, that I'll try and keep free from this what an extraordinary character I wonder how the Old Testament would have worked out if David had made the same covenant with his eyes at that point in the Old Testament, David is really a a hinge moment where the people of Israel could get better and better and better. Finally, they've got a godly king, someone who seeks after God's own heart. Finally, they're in a place where they could go for it with God and become a place, a safe haven and a light to the nations. But one day he says, I'm not going to go out to war. I'm going to Missed the church prayer meeting or the small group, and I'm going to flick my laptop on instead. And that's what he does. And downhill the spiral goes. To here. It's a sad story, isn't it? Of course, we know Psalm 51, where he repents, and God restores him. But we also know the story that happens next with his son Solomon. Solomon who marries Queen of Egypt, and that seems okay, actually. There's nothing against the Queen of Egypt. But then he marries another 300 women from tribes who specifically God said, don't marry these people because they'll lead you into idolatry, and takes 700 concubines beside. David's other children uh, do even worse. They rape their sisters and all sorts of horrible things with uh, concubines, forced sexual practices. Their father's authority has dissipated. His example's gone. And a flood has opened up. So, what do we make of all this and the many other problems in our society today? As I said, I was reading 1 Corinthians 5 through 7 last night with a commentary. And uh, that is probably the most explicit part of the New Testament in terms of talking about how we should then live. And some of it's really difficult reading, especially for an Anglican. Um, (laughs) As an Anglican, what we try and do is have wide open arms. (laughs) Um, I'm not in the habit of grilling uh, members of our church on their sexual practices. (laughs) Within those three chapters, it has some extraordinarily personal advice to people. And uh, you're welcome to sign up at the back if you'd like me to grill you on them later. (laughs) One of them is if you're in a married relationship, you should not abstain from sex together. uh, Except under four conditions, by mutual consent, with a sense that there's going to be an end to it, uh, and that you're doing it for a period of prayer. Otherwise, he says, you might end up consumed by lust and be tempted away by the devil. Now, I don't know if he was going to put an age limit on that or if he felt health might have a (laughs) contribution to that. It doesn't say those things, but interesting. So if anyone wants to be grilled on that afterwards, please do uh, sign up on our online list at the (laughs) back. I'm kidding. I'd rather not. (laughs) But it, again and again, it suggests, look, the way that you live and operate with your bodies is really important. And the argument that Paul makes is this. He says, your bodies are not just your body now. They're not just a fading thing anchored to an important soul. And the soul is the thing that carries on forever, so do whatever you like with your body. Um, Nor are they something that's just yours for you, yourself. Because your body has been bought at a price, the price of the cross. And your body has now become something, something very special, something that you wouldn't desecrate. Your body, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, has become a temple. Now, in Corinth, there were lots of temples, and in those temples were lots of prostitutes. And one way you could express your spirituality in Corinth was to go to the temple and sleep with a prostitute. And Paul's saying, your body has become a temple, but not the sort of temple where you go and sleep with a prostitute (laughs) or the woman down the road or the, the milf in the school playground. It's a place for the Holy Spirit. And if you do what you feel like with your body, when and when you feel like it, you're actually making God sad because that's where he wants to be living now. Do you see? It's a powerful argument, isn't it? You're not your own anymore. I've made a covenant with my eyes. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's much more besides in those chapters that you could look into and think about for yourself. But I want to finish us as I began with the story of Hosea. Because, as I was saying last week, there seemed to be various interventions in the Old Testament, some of which were more effective than others but none of them were ultimately deeply effective. So there was the intervention of the flood, (laughs) wipe it out, start again, see if that will make humanity better, didn't really work. There was the intervention of choosing one person and one family to pour your love into. But as we talked about last week, those generations of patriarchs within three or four generations were a complete and utter mess, just as many of us are (laughs) most of the time. Didn't really work. Then there was the intervention of the law, good and holy as it was, but still enshrining in it the curse of the difference between male and female and a whole number of things beside that you wouldn't be that happy about. Like, should I really go and stone my mother to death because she's wearing clothes made of two fabrics? (laughs) They're not things that we want to carry forward, per se, into our culture now. And then... There's the redeeming lover story. The Hosea story. The do you know that you are loved in such a way that it hurts me to love you in this way. You know, if you're ever looking after children, there's two ways to look after them, isn't there? Um, one is easy on one level and one is much harder. But the harder one gets the results. The easy one is you set a bunch of rules and then you shout at them when they break the rules yeah um, the harder one is that you light a fire that's <laughs> so attractive they want to hang around where you are <laughs> yeah and uh, what we did in our garden uh, a few days ago just lit a fire and suddenly a whole gang of children are just hanging around the fire it's exciting it's fun even let them play with it a little bit Just have fun, enjoy being children together with an adult in a supervised way. And God's saying, look, I've tried giving you the tight boundaries. (laughs) You're rubbish at it. So I'm going to light an amazing fire of my love and see if you can catch it. And I'm even going to let you play with it. Look, put put your stick in the fire, see if it catches light. See if you can know that you're loved, accepted and valued so much. See if you know what it's like to be a temple of the Spirit you value that so much? See if you know what it's like to be consumed by a wonderful, passionate love. See, you value that so much. See if you know what it's like to have a foretaste of eternity now on earth as it is in heaven, where you know that you're known and fully known and you're loved and you're fully loved and you're accepted and you're accepted and you're valued and you're fully valued. See, if you get that now, and all these other things you're not going to f- chase after, <laughs> because you've found a pearl of great price. You've found something more precious than gold. You've found something worth giving everything for so that you can follow the way of that single man Jesus who went to a cross on his 33rd year and gave his life that we can all live and then sent that fire into our hearts that it could energize us and change us forever that's the big story of the scripture is there a place for boundaries and rules yeah partly it helps us to realise when we need to come back is there a place for fearing God absolutely and as a church we're poor at this and maybe we need to sort of really grapple with actually if we're consciously mucking up and steering away from God Should we come to communion? Um, Should we just be a bit more humble about where we are? Or should we be conscious of needing to repent before we come forward and touch holy things? The the Bible says we should be scared about touching in an unworthy manner. I think that's true. I think the biggest story is, is the gracious arms of love for all of us. And if I was to say a sort of a punchline to this series having looked at where we've been where we're going to the mess we're in and what we can now do I think it would be this Wherever you are now with God is the only place from where you can take your next step with God. <laughs> Wherever you are now with God is the only place from where you can take the next step with God. For some of us, we may never fully recover from some of the effects of the sin and fall in our lives today. We may always have that dominant negative voice of a father or an abuser or some other person in our life that has hurt us, and we may not find an easy escape from that this side of eternity. But a step in the right direction is precious and pleasing to God. Some of us may have grown up with so many rules and boundaries that we can, with all the self-righteousness in the world, say, I've never done anything wrong, and I'm better than you. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to say that it would be better for you to go and sin boldly, as Luther would have done. (laughs) But there's something in it. (laughs) An unbroken, self-righteous person is pretty much in the bullseye of Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. when he wants to tell anyone off. They're the main people that he hones in on. And for those who know themselves to be sinners, there's a big wide arm of love. So today, wherever you may be right now, whether you're proud of your track record or conscious of having been a bit of a mess, really, whether you're scared of some of the stuff that goes on in your head and you wouldn't want anyone else to know about it, or you know that God's done a big work in you and taken you from A to B to C to D already, can I implore you as your pastor not to stay where you are, even if that's a great place, but keep taking baby steps in the same direction towards more and more holiness and less and less self-righteousness until as a community of love, we become that safe space increasingly where God can rescue anyone and everyone he wants to, one tiny little step at a time, his time, not ours. May God bless this word and this series to us. And where you need to go away and think on it more, and may he bless you with the grace and time to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.